From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 27, Diceversary. So hi there, and welcome to The Spiel. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And we have officially reached our one-year mark. One year. Woohoo! Awesome. <laughs> we have made it through a whole 26 episodes. We're on 27 now, starting year two of The Spiel. It's, it's yeah. really kind of hard to believe. We actually still have listeners, and Stephen <laughs> and I haven't killed each other. Amazing. <laughs> on both counts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I mean, this thing has taken off far quicker and... Bigger even in just the first year than we could have really imagined, I think. You know, we, we love doing it, and it's awesome to know that you all out there value and, and like what we're doing. So, yeah, the response and the input, you know, has been awesome on the show. So. <laughs> kind of overwhelming right. in a way, but in, in the best possible way of being overwhelmed. <laughs> exactly. But I think we've got a, we've got a good anniversary uh, episode here on tap. Exactly. My kind of games in the um, list segment tonight. I think we're playing a couple dicey games. <laughs> it seemed only appropriate. Exactly. Coming up on the year. We haven't really gotten really dice heavy lately. And since you got kind of punished on the last poll with people <laughs> right. not giving love to the dice, we got to give some love to the dice this time. So we've got what? Uh, to um, Court the King, right. which is a rather new game. And then we also did... Uh, Battleground, Fantasy Warfare, sort of tabletop miniatures, but in card form. Yeah. <laughs> And then we've uh, we've got a new contest actually where people can win some free games. Free games, sweet. <laughs> got got the free dice with the back shelf spotlight, and now there's going to be a chance for uh, a lucky listener to win uh, a free game. So that's pretty awesome. I think we should should stop teasing people and, and just get get right to it. Let's do it. Game news and notes. Okay, I've got a handful of little snippets in the news and notes today. Um, first thing I just wanted to let everybody know is Days of Wonder has announced um, that they are going to publish expansions for Pirate's Cove and Shadows Over Camelot, which is our two games that I know Stephen and I both enjoy a lot. Now, there's really no information about this, so it's probably a year away or something. Who knows? But just the fact that these puppies are coming out. That's, should be, yeah, I can't that's wait to see what they're going to do for expansions for these guys. Um, second, uh, we had a listener, Matthew McLeod, send in with some information that he wanted everybody to know about, a game called, I don't know, what do you want to play? <laughs> and this is pretty cool. It's a web-published game designed by Tom Keel. You can link to it through the board game Geek. Basically, you have to um, be registered at the Geek, and then you have to have your game collection in there. If you do, you can upload your game collection, um, send it to over to Tom Keel, and he will print out a PDF. And it'll be basically cards. You'll get one card for every game in your collection. And there's this game, that's right, a card <laughs> game that you can play that will help you decide which game you're actually going to play that night. <laughs> that now, is kooky. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that Steven and I could use that in our 1,000-plus <laughs> game collection. That'd be a hell of a long game. The only game we would ever play off the list is, I don't, I don't know, know, what do you, you want to play? play? <laughs> exactly. Because the first thing you do with this game is deal out all the cards. Like, uh-oh. We'd have arthritis or carpal tunnel <laughs> from holding all the cards, I think. <laughs> exactly. But if, if that sounds like something neat, the, what I think I could see happen is maybe not doing 
your entire collection, maybe deciding on a genre oh, yeah. of game that That's you want to idea. play and use this. Because it, it seems, you know, kind of interesting. But check that out. And last but not least, something I'm excited about, um, Asmodee has a reprint of Cash and Guns, expected oh, to be yeah. out this month. <laughs> it's a game that was designed back in 2005 by Ludovic Malblanc. It's for four to six players, ages 12 and up. Retails forty bucks. You can get it for twenty-five to thirty bucks. Little background: you've just been pulled, or you've just pulled off a heist with your gangster buddies, and now you're in an abandoned warehouse trying to figure out how to split up the loot. The problem is nobody can agree on how they should share the haul, and within seconds, you're all pointing guns at each other. <laughs> this just sounds, and and you really are pointing guns at each other because there's like six foam, foam guns, guns <laughs> that come with the game. This game just looks so totally fun and crazy. I'm glad that um, Asmodee has a reprint coming out. Yeah, we mentioned this on the holiday right, thing. Right, exactly. I, we both were like saying, man, we, we should get that one. So, so I'm, really I'm stoked that one of us should definitely get this uh, very soon because it looks very fun. <laughs> Add it to the list. <laughs> the list that isn't on the list yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the sub-list, the pre-list list. <laughs> okay, what do you got over there? I've got, I've got some just kooky things of my own that are not necessarily new games, but are things that if you're a game person... You? I think kooky will, things? Yeah, I know. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> so the first one, I, I wish I could have waited to send you the link to this just to see the look on your face, because oh. I had to go, I like had to wake up Francie and say, you have to come here and look at this. <laughs> so it's an automatic Mahjong shuffling tile table. I, it's even hard to describe. There'll be a link, and I'll hopefully just post the full video, um, like through YouTube, onto the website so you can see it yourself. So imagine a table that, let's say you're done playing a hand of Mahjong. Mahjong's the Asian tile, rummy tile type game. You've got these beautiful domino shaped tiles. You're done with a hand. You've pushed all your tiles to the middle. Normally, you'd have to mix all the tiles up and then rebuild the wall, which I actually like doing. This table, you push all of the tiles into a little sort of bucket in the middle of the table, and then the, the table shuts on itself. You'll hear it go, whir, 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 and then out of the table pop the walls, totally shuffled and ready to go in like three seconds. It's the most amazingly cool little thing that I've seen in a long time that I just, you know, the drool just immediately started <laughs> dripping out of my mouth when, when I saw When I saw this. this video, I just... My chin dropped. I had to watch it like five or six times. I'm like, there's no way this is that cool. <laughs> it, it, if I don't know how much it is, but if I had 10 million yen or whatever it costs, I would have one because it is sweet. It's really cool. I'll put the links and hopefully just post the video straight to the to the website so you can see. Uh, definitely worth seeing. Even if you're not if you're not a mahjong fan, this might make you a mahjong right, fan just exactly. because the table is so cool. Um, so that's that's a kooky thing number one. Kooky thing number two. This was actually submitted by um, a listener, um, okay. Pete Marlowe, I have to thank for this one. He uh, This this goes along with this kind of dice theme of this episode. Um, it's a magnetic Rubik's Cube that you can make yourself. It's totally made out of dice, though. So ah. it's the plans for taking, like, any Just size, standard. standard size, you know, uh, um, six-sided dice... Um, routing out part of them and putting powerful magnets into them, and then you snap it together, and it makes an actual Rubik's Cube that works just like a Rubik's Cube out of dice. Wow. It's the coolest thing that I, I've seen in a long time, and it's something that you could make for yourself. You might actually be finding one of these under your uh, <laughs> Christmas tree this coming year. That's <laughs> freaky you, cool. If you behave yourself, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'll put the links to... Uh, um, the instructions on how to make, I mean, it's blow by blow, how to, you know, route the dice, where to get the magnets, the whole nine yards. So 
check that out. Um, I think it's it's definitely worth looking for. And thanks to Pete Marlowe again yeah, for that's neat. submitting that one. Um, lastly, on um, the list here for me, I've got uh, the results of our first Cosmos two-player game cage match. Um, it's uh, <laughs> if you notice someone isn't uh, talking as much trash as he might have been last week. <laughs> He's been humbled. <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> so the first game, thanks again to uh, Jim Grosh, was the person who suggested doing this Cosmos cage match. So the deal is we're going to play all the Cosmos two-player games to determine who is the best game player for once and for all. Um, so we did best two out of three of Lost Cities. That was the first one. And I am proud to say that I uh, trounced trounced Dave in the first Cosmos cage match. It was sad. <laughs> it was sad. Let's just say uh, the final score uh, over the whole thing, if we added up all of our points over the, the three games, I finished with 535 points And total. I didn't. <laughs> Let's say Dave finished about 300 points behind me. 300. <laughs> I don't claim any great skill. Most of it was just dumb, stupid luck, but... <laughs> Needless to say, it was a good booty whipping. Yep. <laughs> so Dave's one down. On I don't the... think we finished playing that till like six o'clock in the morning, and I was almost ready to go. Let's go again, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he was he was pretty miffed for the uh, the beating that he took, but I'm glad to say that I'm off to a good start. And uh, stay tuned for more info on the. Uh... I'm just trying to give him a false sense of security before I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just keep you keep telling yourself that. <laughs> Um, I think, uh, lastly, we've got the contest ah. info, so I'll throw that back to you. Okay, cool. Yeah, starting next episode, we're going to have a brand new contest. Um, Fundex, which is a company from here in Indianapolis, has graciously sent us a handful of their new um, card game, Rage. Which we so, mentioned here yeah, recently. Yeah, a couple episodes ago. So we're going to have some of those to give away as prizes. So that's caused us to create a new contest. You're going to have to work for it. <laughs> exactly. We're not just going to send them out. So we've decided to name this contest, appropriately, Name That Game. So every episode, somewhere hidden in the episode, will be this new contest. And there will be clues. They'll be different every episode. Sometimes they may be musical cues or clues. Sometimes they might be just sound effects or dialogue or... You don't Any, know. Anything <laughs> they could possibly ever be. It'll just pop up, but no matter what they are, they will always lead you to think of the name of a game. When you figure this out, email us with the name of that game. You'll be entered into the contest to win a free copy of Rage. And it's uh, first come, first serve. So the first correct answer we get is going to be the winner for that particular name that game. So got to be listening gotta early be on it. and on it to, to qualify to win. Or, you know, if it's a tough clue, it could be, you know... It, could go several days before somebody gets it. Exactly. And don't despair. We have, like I said, a handful of these copies. So um, this is a contest that will probably be around for a while. Yeah. But yeah. the uh, for for the first handful, the the prizes will be Rage. After that, who knows what we'll have. Yeah. If you, if you have a game company out there and you want to throw some, some free product our way to give out on Name That Game, feel free to contact us at steven at thespiel.net. Or dave at thespiel.net. And we'd be happy to, to pass along some free stuff to the listeners out there. Um, but but fear not, we've got plenty of rage in stock <laughs> for the for the foreseeable future. So I think that'll be a a good new thing for the, the new year of the Spiel. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. To, to thank people for listening and, and make you work for it, too. <laughs> The List Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. 
Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So the first of the dice games we're offering here on the, the Spiel this week is the heavier of the two. This is going to be a meaty one. Um, this is Battleground Fantasy Warfare. It was published in 2005. Chad Ellis and Robert Doherty are the um, designers. Your Move Game is the publisher. Um, Two-player game. They say 60 minutes with the average game. I would actually say it's probably a little bit longer than that. Once you're familiar with the game, I could see it perhaps right. being able to play it in an hour. But I, I would say this is probably more like a two-hour, two-plus um, the first couple times you're going to play and get familiar with the game. Um, starter decks and reinforcement decks are range from about 10 to $12 online, um, which is a really good deal, I think, for, for what you're getting. So as you probably have guessed by this point, Battleground Fantasy Warfare is a card game. But it's not your typical kind of card game because it's a war. It's actually a, a tabletop war game disguised as a, a card game for, in card game form. Um, so let's just jump right into um, what you get with this game. So all of the game is played with these decks of cards. You could actually play with a single starter deck and split up um, the starter deck into two separate armies and play um, to, to start out with. It's probably more advisable to buy two decks, so you're just going to have a little variety in the kinds of armies you're going to play. Um, there are three types of cards you're going to get in the average deck. You're going to get unit cards command cards, and then a few reference cards with your charts and just notes about the different armies and things that you'll refer to in, in, during the course of the game. Um, the unit cards have a top-down perspective of the unit described. Think of it sort of like a picture of a painted stand of miniatures that you're just kind of looking down on. Uh, the unit stats are printed along the bottom edge of each card, including a damage bar with boxes that you're going to check off as the unit gets hurt, an order circle, and numbers that indicate its movement range, courage, combat, and defense ranks. Uh, the cards are really heavily plastic coated, so you're going to keep track of each unit's orders and damage on the card using a dry erase marker, which that is just freaky cool, I yeah, think. That, I like that a lot. Um, you know, more normally in these types of games, you know, like, oh, writing on the cards, what are you talking about? <laughs> in this game, it's not only encouraged, it's it's actually just a, a mechanic, a function of the game. You're going to write your, your orders and stuff, which I think is just... Plus it's you can put mustaches on your zombies if you want. <laughs> That's definitely a, a, a definitely a something you couldn't do. It would take a lot longer if you were painting them on. With right? The yeah, miniatures. yeah, it would. <laughs> um, so back to the cards. Uh, the other really interesting thing about the, the unit cards themselves is there are measuring markers, little red hatch marks at the midpoint on each side of the card. Thus, any spare unit card can be used as a ruler in the game, since all units move in increments that are equal to uh, divisions of the lengths or the sides of the cards themselves, which I think that's just a really unique uh, way to, to compact the game into this really right. uh, you know, bite-sized form without sacrificing depth. 
Um, so that's really interesting. Um, on the back of each unit card is going to be listed the unit special abilities and rules that are pertained to that specific unit, including its point value for army building purposes and experience level. So we'll get into that a little bit um, later. I think I should also preface my overall comments on Battleground by saying I'm going to kind of, I hope to give you a good sense of the game without getting completely bogged down in a blow by blow list of all the modifiers and all those things. So anybody out there who's really a Battleground fan may be yelling at me for, for glossing over a few of the things. But what I want people to be able to walk away from is with a, a good sense of how this game is, is played and give you kind of the overview. And then we may get into a little more nitty gritty when we're actually talking about what we liked and, and disliked. Um, so that just gives you kind of a, a sense of where we're going here. <laughs> um, so back to the, the card descriptions. We've got the unit cards, which I've just done. The command cards are the other part of the, the deck. Um, the command cards are going to be used to modify a variety of factors during the game. They're broken down into three categories. You have attack command cards, defense command cards, and then uh, they don't really give the other ones the names. They're kind of anytime command right. cards, and they're color-coded. So attacks are red, defenses are blue, and the anytimes are green. Um, you can begin with up to six of these kinds of cards um, in your hand when you start the game if you factor that into the army cost when you're building your army or you're going to draw these cards during the course of the game by spending action points. So a little bit about army building before we actually get into the, the course, the setup, and the course of a, a, a simple basic game. Um, there are starter army lists that are provided on those reference cards um, in each starter deck. And I would say it's a good idea to use one of these lists for your first few games just to keep things balanced. After that, um, you're going to refer to the back of each unit card to figure out how many points and the level, the experience level of each of the cards because you're only allowed a certain number of elite troops or regular troops in your deck. Um, the standard scenarios that they have worked up are all for 2,000 point armies, so that kind of gives you an idea of the size of the armies you're going to have. They'll probably range anywhere from like 8 to 15 cards, depending upon the, the strengths of the different units that you're going to pick. So after you've decided what armies you're going to play, in our game, what we played, the dwarves of Runeguard versus the... The zombies, the, zom or the undead. The undead, yeah. of, I don't remember where they're from, but <laughs> down the road. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so once you've picked your armies, um, you're going to set up one of the cool things, not unlike uh, DBA, is that you can play this literally anywhere. Um, the game board is uh, two feet, two and a half feet by three and a half feet, which, I, ironically enough, is the same size, as the <laughs> same ratio of the dimension of the uh, card. card itself. So <laughs> I found that kind of funny that they, they use the card for the measuring stick, but they also use it for the size of the board, That's very too. That's cool. Um, you're going to choose opposite sides of the board to set up on, um, and then you're going to deploy your army in your little deployment zone, which is a little area that's seven inches deep from your edge and five inches in from the side. So you can set up your cards, and you're going to take turns one at a time, putting out until all your army's out. Um, the other kind of unique aspect to this setup phase, which is a little different than a lot of war games, is you're going to issue standing orders to your entire army. So a lot of times in war games like DBA and other things, or let's say Battle Lore, um, which has the little command card system, you're only going to be able to 
use part of your army on a given turn, you know, and that's going to be determined right. by the cards you're going to get or with DBA, you're going to roll a certain number of command pips and that's going to determine how many pieces of your army you can move. In Battleground, you actually kind of have to have a plan before you start the game. And what I mean by that is you have to issue standing orders as to what each unit's going to do before the game even starts. And there are three basic standing orders that you're going to give. And those units are going to do exactly what that order is until you tell them different. So your whole army is going to end up doing something, even if that doing something is nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> By telling them stand their ground. You have to tell, issue an order to every piece of your um, army before the game starts. Um, and the ba- there are basically three simple types of command um, standing orders that you're going to give at the beginning of the game. So let's go over those. Um, you can hold, you can close, or you can use a range attack. So holding, pretty obvious. You write an H in the little circle on your card. Your unit's not going to move, but it will shoot if it can at the nearest possible enemy. Um, all of these orders are going to be issued one at a time. You're going to kind of do the ping pong thing back and forth. I issue one, you issue one, I issue one, until your whole armies have these orders. So I would write an H, and then you would go on and write something else. So if you wanted to close, you'd write a C. Um, closing means that the unit is going to move its maximum movement towards the nearest enemy unit. If it can shoot, it will as though it had the ranged attack or the ranged standing order. So in other words, those guys are going to be rushing into battle as quickly as they can. Lastly, we have ranged attack. Pretty obvious. Um, Only units with range can get the ranged attack um, standing order. Um, If the unit already has a target, a legal target in range, it'll stand still and it'll shoot. If it doesn't have a legal target in range, then it'll move its maximum move and then shoot if it has a legal target to shoot at. So there you have it with the basic three things. Now there are two modifiers to these basic standing orders. You can give, you can modify those basic standing orders by adding an objective or a movement increment. So the objective could be a particular part of the battlefield, like I want to take that hill, in which case you could write um, the C for close and put like the numeral one next to it. And then you would indicate that one by taking an extra six-sided die. I guess I didn't indicate that. The The game's played with the deck of cards and you just need a bunch of six-sided dice. So you could take an extra one of your six-sided dice, put that number one out on the hill that you're going to show, so that you're showing your opponent, hey, that guy right there, my, my dwarf uh, hammerers are going to head towards that hill. So he gets to know, or you could say it's a unit. I'm going after your zombies. Um, so you can designate a particular spot on the field or a particular unit that that guy's going to be targeted as, as a way of modifying these standing orders. Or if you remember what I was saying about the close and the range, those standing orders, they're obliged to move their maximum move unless you state otherwise. So you could say, give them an increment less than their maximum. So if my maximum was say three and a half inches, I could say close two inches. And then that unit's only going to move two inches every turn instead of its maximum. So there's kind of set up already getting into the strategy phase of the game. So you actually, I think that's one aspect that really makes this game kind of stand out a little bit in that you're actually issuing orders and kind of developing your strategy in terms of how you want the battle to form before even the first dice are rolled in the game. Um, I think that's kind of... Yeah, it was very neat. Kind of a cool thing. 
So now that we've got everything set up and we're ready to battle, here are the, the four typical phases of a game turn. Two of them are most likely going to happen on a given turn, and other ones may or may not happen depending upon the situation. So the one that's always going to happen is the movement and command phase. Then there's a pre-combat courage phase. Then there's going to be combat. And then there's going to be a post-combat courage phase. So the, the meat, the, the meat of the game is going to be played out in this movement and command phase of the game. Every unit will move or not according to its standing orders, um, and you're going to take turns. So the active player, whoever the active player is, is going to move their things. They're going to go first in all of these rounds, and then it's going to flip-flop, and then the other active person is going to go through movement, pre-combat courage, combat, post-combat courage. Um, that determines kind of the, the turn order. So it's back and forth, in other words, with a few little exceptions when we get to combat, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. Um, so like I was saying, every unit's going to move or not according to its standing orders. Unit's actions, however, can be modified by spending action points. You have action points equal to, um, you get one action point for every 500 points that are in your army. So in our example, for our game, we had about 1,500 point armies, with the, the starting with a few command cards in our hands. Um, so we each had three action points that we could spend on our turns. Now you can use these action points for a lot of different things to modify your troop movements or to draw other command cards. Here's what you can do with them. Um, you can change a standing order on a unit. So if you want to change a unit from hold to close. You just wipe it off and do that. That costs an action point. Uh, you can take direct control of a unit, which is sort of, you don't change its standing order, but for just this turn, you, yeah, you pretend that standing order isn't there, and you can move it in any direction. You just sort of ignore the standing order and do whatever you want with it for that turn uh, within the, the limitations of that unit. Right. <laughs> it can't suddenly grow wings and fly across the board. Dang! <laughs> <laughs> um, you can rally a routing unit. So one of the basic strategies we'll get to is routing units. Is if, if you have a unit that's been routed, in other words, it's failed a morale test and it's running away, um, you can rally it so that you can then command it and bring it back into the battle. That costs an action point. Um, you can use your army's abil special abilities. There are little cards with each of the starter decks that each army has a few special abilities that are unique to that army, and by spending an action point, you can activate that special ability. I know your stupid one was a pain <laughs> in my butt the whole whole game. You, regeneration. The, the stupid zombies, yeah. I would start hacking away at them, and they just kept regenerating, and I couldn't... That was very nice. Couldn't whittle them down fast <laughs> enough. Um, and lastly, you can draw more command cards. If you didn't start out with any, by factoring those into your army building part, you can, for a cost of 25 army points per card, up to six cards, you can actually start with a few in your hand. If you don't, then you're going to have to spend action points to fill up your hand to be able to do these other things like modify your attack rolls or defense rolls during the course of the game. So, Again, just to kind of review, you're going to move your whole army based on these standing orders, and you're going to spend these action points to either modify how your army moves or modify your orders of your army or activate these special abilities or draw command cards. Whew! 
<laughs> so there's, we're actually getting to almost the, the, there's kind of a momentum to, to this game. So you're, we're all building up towards um, the actual combat phase of the game. The movement takes place like almost any standard war game. I know this tripped you up a little just because you're not used right. to playing tabletop war games, but units wheel and move in standard ways that almost every war game applies to. Um, the the thing to get into, though, with the movement, in addition to, as I said before, the units are all going to move according to the sides and lengths of the cards themselves. Each unit has a movement category. In other words, that's based on the number of inches that's listed on its card. These measurements, however, correspond to the lengths and widths of the cards themselves. There's a movement category chart that's included in the reference cards with each deck, and this is going to be your little Bible that you're going to want to have and, <laughs> and memorize or, or have close at hand at all times because how you're going to move your troops is going to depend a lot on this little movement chart. Units are going to move their full move as listed unless they perform any maneuvers, which is what we're talking about with the, these wheelings and turnings. Um, maneuvers are going to modify the unit's movement category, causing them to move less than they normally would in most cases. So, for instance, if a unit is, does an about-face or moves sideways or trudges through a swamp, each of these maneuvers is going to reduce its movement category um, or MC, as they sort of shorten it in the game. So for each penalty incurred, so for each minus one to their MC, you're going to consult this little MC chart, and you're going to move one step up on the chart, meaning less inches. Um, so a unit whose starting MC might be 2.5 inches, which translates to one side of the card, minus one MC would have its movement reduced to 1.75 inches or half of a length. I know that's going to blow most people's brains <laughs> until you see these little charts. The important distinction to note is that this minus one MC isn't a simple minus one inch that you need to consult this chart to see if I want to wheel and turn around and do these other things, that those maneuvering costs are going to reduce your movement, but it's not a simple one MC right. equals one inch kind of thing. And I know that that was a uh, thing that kind of tripped us up for a little while when we were playing this game. The, the only last thing that I want to talk about here is the final rush dealing with the movement, and then we'll just jump right into the combat uh, part cool. of the game. If a unit's movement category would bring its front center point into contact with an open center point of an enemy, then you're going to line that card up so that they're in contact along the, the sides where they would have come into contact. Um, that's going to initiate combat in most cases. If more than one unit has this final rush, so in other words, if their movement would bring them up to where they're actually going to be into combat, you're going to do those movements before all the other movements. I do this sort of last because in terms of how you're starting out the game, you're going to be moving your units around the board, and it's only you're going to take a couple turns before these final right. rushes actually happen. But when you get to this movement phase, the first thing you want to look at is see, oh, do I have any units that would actually enter combat or do this final rush? You take care of those first, and then you're going to go back and move the rest of your units however you want, factoring in the maneuver costs and also remembering that you have these action points to spend. The other note that I just remembered about the action points um, that I didn't mention is that they don't bank. So if you right. don't, you have to use them or that you lose them. So there's no point in, if you can't figure out what to do with them, draw some command cards into your exactly. hand and you'll have those for later use. So you can already see there's a fair amount of depth to what essentially is a little card right. game that'll fit in your pocket. 
Um, we've gotten through the movement phase. Um, the pre-combat courage phase is something that may or may not happen. There are going to be times in the battle where your bravery of your troops are going to be put to the test. In these situations, you have to make a courage check. Um, if you remember, the unit cards have three different stats on them. They have sort of attack-based stats, defense-based stats, and then courage. Um, there are basically two types of courage checks that you're going to make. You're going to roll three six-sided dice, and you have to roll, in all cases in this game, you're going to roll equal to or below whatever your target number is. So if you're ever forced to make a courage check, you're going to roll these dice, and based on the result of the roll, you're either going to be okay if you roll equal to or lower, or you might be routed or frightened. The pre-combat courage phase, uh, you're gonna. The only time that's gonna occur is if you have units that are gonna be flanked. You're gonna have to test to see if they're routed, or if um, you've been engaged by a unit that has the fearsome quality to see if your units cower in fear, which will put them in minuses in terms of combat. So. This may or may not happen just based on the, the course of the game. Routing could cause other units, uh, it could cause you to run away or other units to give free attacks on you. Um, this phase, obviously, is just going to be situational. It's going to, hopefully it comes up more for your opponent than it does for you right. in the course of the game. Um, so that's phase two, may or may not happen, pre-combat courage phase. Combat is where the, the meat of the game is and where Dave had his uh, dice fest, yeah. <laughs> first dice fest of, of this episode. So um, basically, the active player is going to start with the combat, but both players get to attack. Combat is considered simultaneous. So both units um, are actually going to get their licks in before the combat phase is done, but you always start with the active player. If the active player has a choice between targets, he chooses, you know, if, if there are two that he's lined up on and engaged with, engaged being defined as more than half of your card is in contact with an opponent's card, um, then you have your choice of which unit you're going to be able to, to attack. Um, so here are the steps to combat. Pretty standard stuff, although they use a fair number of modifiers to get to, get to the rolls here. So the first thing you have to figure out is how many dice do you roll? That's pretty simple. You look at your card. There's a number listed by the sword, which is your attack skills. The number in parenthesis is the number of dice that you're going to roll. Um, and that can be modified by command cards or different abilities to make that number higher or lower. So that you're going to pull dice over, and that's going to be the number of dice you're going to get to roll. The next thing you do is determine the number to hit. Um, and that's simple. You look at that sword icon on your card. The first number listed is your skill, and you're going to subtract your opponent's defense skill, which is the number next to his shield. So it's attack skill minus defense skill. That determines the number that you're trying to roll. You roll your dice. You're doing the equal to or less than thing. The important thing to remember is that ones always hit and sixes always miss. So you might have this target number, but you always have a chance to hit no matter what. So you determine which of your guy, which of your units actually scored hits. You pull those over to the side, and now you're going to determine whether they do damage or not. So starting again, we you determine the die, number of dice you roll. You determine the number that hit, and then if you hit, you're going to determine damage. The damage is, is just like the attack in a way. You're going to look at that sword icon, and the last number listed is your attack's toughness. You're going to compare that or subtract your defender's toughness, and that's your target number for actually damaging. So of those dice that hit, you're going to pick those up, roll those again, and if you are able to achieve that target number equal to or lower than, then you've scored damage 
Here's where the little marking of the cards comes in. For each hit that you score, you're going to cross off little boxes on the damage little meter. <laughs> I sort of like think of it like a video game, it a is, little damage is. meter on the bottom of the card. And you're going to cross those off on the bottom. Um, there's sort of a, a green area, a yellow area, and a red area to the damage meter on most cards. Some of them go straight from green to red. Whenever you cross from one damage zone to another, then... Uh, you might have to make a route check and you're going to be at, at penalties and you can even write on the card to remind yourself or just indicate, you know, circle it so that you don't forget, oh, I'm, I'm in the yellow now, so I'm at a minus to my die rolls. So that's basically combat. The uh, defender is going to get his licks back in return. You're not destroyed until all of your damage boxes are marked off. So that gives you a sense. And most of these cards have probably... Oh, geez, at least six, and probably even more than that, yeah. uh, boxes on them. So depending upon the strengths and weaknesses of the, of the unit, there's going to be a different number of boxes on these particular cards. Um, last but not least, we have the post-combat courage phase, which those uh, it's only used to resolve any routes that occurred as a result of combat. So if you passed from the red damage or the green damage boxes to the yellow, or from the yellow to the red, or you're already in the red for every red box, you're going to have to make a route check. Again, that's the three dice, and you're trying to roll equal to or lower than your courage. If you're routed, then all these other things are going to apply in terms of how you move, and those are going to be resolved in the um, either pre-combat route, uh, courage check phase or in this phase, if you're routed, you lose your standing order, you're going to move towards your the edge of the board. The really bad thing about being routed is if someone else can get engaged with you again and attack you, your unit's going to be destroyed for having been attacked while it's being right. routed. So a key to the game definitely is trying to not only destroying a unit by crossing off all its boxes, but get a unit to where it's been routed and then try to attack it again and be able to knock it off the board that way. So (laughs) a lot easier to do that than to just whittle them down, especially if you have stupid regenerating zombies. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Basically, it's rinse and repeat from this point. I know that this is kind of a lot to take in, but like any war game, it kind of has an ebb and a flow to it. And if you kind of get the the flow to figuring out these modifiers and understanding more, more importantly, understanding how the troops move, um, then I think you can have a, a fair amount of fun with this game, especially with the fact that this game fits in your back pocket. To have a game that has... It's definitely heavier than, I would say, something like DBA, where that game is very simple to learn and has that ability to be able to throw down without having a ton of stuff. I mean, literally, this game can fit in your pocket. You can pull it out anywhere, and it has more depth than uh, a very light war game like, let's say, Battle Lore or even a DBA, but isn't so complicated that, you know, if you play, if you have a war gamer who is familiar with the kind of concepts, you could sit down and play this. I think I'm really interested to see what your uh, input is on this game. Me being a little bit more of a, not totally hardcore war gamer, but certainly more experienced, you coming to it with almost no experience with this kind of war game. I think I'll shut up now and catch my <laughs> breath and let you uh, you weigh in here and, and talk for a little bit. <laughs> cool. Well, there actually, there's a lot of things I liked about this. And, and remember, this is coming from the point of view of a quasi-tabletop wargaming virgin, so to speak. <laughs> um, but the, the first thing I'll say that I was expecting, since this was a card game, just like you just said, I was expecting this to be light. And 
there is it's definitely not light. <laughs> I mean, there are all kinds of charts and numbers and strategies that you can use in this that go, you know, way beyond just what I was thinking you could do. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool. Yeah. I was in one in one way I was hoping it was going to be light since <laughs> I was kind of a new to this, but in a second way I really enjoyed when it wasn't because it allows you just out of this simple deck of cards, so much really cool strategy as if you were playing a real miniatures, you know, war game. Um, first thing, just like you just said, I mean, hello, how many cool games you just put it in your pocket with a few dice, the fact that you don't have to have your tape measure, you don't have to have a ruler, they fixed, you know, figured out all the measuring with the cards, so pretty much just keep this in your pocket and you're good to go. I mean, that that is just totally awesome. Um, they do have several versions. I believe everything you were kind of just walking through was the basic version. Yes, yes. So believe it or not, you can step up to a whole other handful of pages for the adv- advanced version, right. which is really cool, you know, once you've taken that on. But I was, I was really surprised how much I enjoyed this game. <laughs> you know, it was, it was just very, once you got into the flow, like Steven said, there was a few things that I had to learn since I hadn't played this style of game. But once I learned those and got into the flow of the turn, the movement of the figures, I really enjoyed the dice rolling, um, the way that they basically just put handfuls of dice in your hand every time, compare this number to this number, find this. And I love the action points or command points or whatever they're called. I just think that that is a great mechanic because since you're giving those standing orders to your units all at the beginning of the game, you have a very limited number of these um, action points, and it's just ripping your hair out. Oh, man, I really want to spend them for this. But you've got those three or four points, and you're spreading them around to changing orders, drawing cards, doing special abilities. It's just a really neat mechanic. I like I like the fact that you never it, it makes you make tough decisions with yeah. those co- action points that you never have quite enough to do exactly right. what you want right. to do. You want to be able to do five things, but you can only do three of those five. So. I know at the beginning of our game, we loaded ourselves up with these cards at the beginning by going ahead and paying for them in our cost. And we're like, well, this is too many. You're going to be able to do everything. It didn't take very long until <laughs> we, we, we didn't have very many. I'm yeah. It, yeah. So it became, um, I know my tough decision was that I had those regenerating things. And with only so many points, I'm like, oh, I really have to regenerate those guys. But that means I have to not have access to as many command cards or change as many orders as I had hoped to doing. So it, it really does have a great feel to it. Yeah, I think the, the, the best thing I liked about it was the fact that um, you have to commit to a plan. Right. Before you start the game, in a lot of war games, you kind of you you already do that have, to a certain right. extent, where you think, well, okay, this is going to kind of be my plan, but you have the flexibility to, you know, even as close as your first turn, go, well, screw that, I, you know, right. I'm going to do something totally different. In this game, there's actually a. a pretty harsh penalty for you have to sit down and think about how you want your army to move and there's nothing to stop you from from changing your strategy midstream but there's a cost associated with that so if you don't stop to think if you come up with a bad strategy to start out with you're going to pay the price because you're going to have to rearrange and, right. and erase and use those action points just to get your guys where you want them Changing to Changing your strategy takes several steps. It's not just like, wham, I'll change it. Right. I mean, with those few action points, you can't just change your entire army in a blink of an eye. Because it's, you know, because it's kind of hardwired into right. the rules where you instead of it just being a theoretical strategy, it's a strategy that you literally are putting your cards on the table, right. <laughs> yeah, pun <exactly>. intended, <laughs> and having to show you know, where your units are and what you think you want them to do. 
one, it gives your opponent to go, oh, well, I see what he's going to do, so then you could adjust to his strategy. I think that's really a, it's not completely unique, but I think the way it's been incorporated into this game is is really interesting and, and fun. Right, the flip side of that, it's very fun to see one of your opponent's units that they just can't fix. Yeah, you know, I mean, they don't have enough points. They to don't deal have with enough it. points. It's just going to be wondering <laughs> about doing there. what he's going to do. You're like, cool. <laughs> this one's mine, baby. <laughs> um, I there are a couple gripes I had with it though. the The whole movement chart thing, I thought it was needlessly complicated for including both the inches and the sides and the lengths that having on the on the unit card it lists the movement range in inches just in inches right and then the movement chart thing over here has inches and sides and lengths of cards what's clear just in the way everything is worded in the rules that they want you to start thinking in terms of sides and lengths of right. the cards and having to constantly go okay yeah sides two and a half inches and this is you know three and a half inches having to do those i'm sure if you played it more that that would become more exactly. second nature but I just it seemed weird. I thought your suggestion too of just listing both the inches and the, the MCs, the MCs, the you know, the, unit so that on the unit card it might say two and a half inches and then have one S in parentheses, so that you have it, both right. that stuff. So you're not constantly having to look at the reference sheet to to remember. So that would kind of give you the option to do either one. I know we sent some emails back and forth with Chad Ellis, and he said that was their concern with doing that. Is most war gamers think in terms think of in inches, inches already, right. which I th- that's a very valid point. But right. I think because you have this added benefit of having the the rulers built into the, the cards are the rulers. Right. That why not take advantage? Of that it seems like they they stopped one step fully of of taking full advantage. Right, because because I that. love the MCs, I love the movement units. You know, I mean, it allows you to still um, actually play as in depth as you would with a measuring type of game, but it kind of weans you off of you know the yardstick or the tape measure or something. <laughs> but but you still all the information is right there, just like you said. The actual size of the battlefield, same dimensions as a card. You can use those cards to easily lay out a battlefield, mm-hmm. no matter where you're at. Absolutely. You know? so, my my other my other gripe is the length of the game. Um, the the basic game has last man standing as the rule, and boy, this game would take a lot longer than it really needs to for for ease of play. Once you right. get past, uh, you know, a few of these hurdles with understanding the little movement chart and getting the modifiers down, that's the other thing. The first few turns of combat, there's going to be a lot of okay, I subtract this from that, and this is the number of dice I roll. I I expected that to trip us up more than it did. By maybe the third turn into the game, we were both like, okay, I'm at plus two and you're at plus three and I need this number. And that actually flowed a lot smoother than I thought. But simply because there's so many damage boxes on all the units and even getting a unit to the point where it will route takes a while that playing the last man standing it is definitely not a one hour game if you play that way my advice would be play uh, sort of dba style where x number of x number of stands or play a certain number of turns say i think we that's what we did just due to time constraints is we didn't play the last man standing because we would have (laughs) been the sun would have been coming up before we finished this one learning the game plus playing till that end but we played i think 12 turns and right. said, you know, best, you know, I ended up, I think, winning, although it looked right. like the battle was about to turn in your favor right. big time. Uh, and just, so you could easily play it that way. And I just think in terms of setting up the basic rules, that's kind of a misstep 
on their part to not say, as your introduction to the game, don't play last man standing. Once you're familiar with the game, go nuts and play last man standing. Right. But Especially just, you don't want to play a game where you've made wrong decisions from the very beginning that yeah. you're playing on for hours. You know, play to a handful of stands, then reset and try it again. This allows you to, you know, basically reset and relearn what, you know, yeah, fix exactly. what you did wrong in the first one. Mm-hmm. And with a variety of armies they have out there, you have the nice ability to, to mix in and they have reinforcement decks that allow you to toss in all sorts of different kinds of units into your battles. I mean, you could literally play with a different deck and it would be a lot right, like yeah. having a different game because once you learn the rules, there are little particular things that apply to different armies. Even, that, even in the basic armies that they give you to try out first, there's a pretty good amount of diversity in the abilities mm-hmm. of those particular units. So it was pretty neat. <laughs> but I kudos to uh, Your Move Games. I think that, to me, the most impressive thing is to find a game of this depth that literally will fit in your Bingo, hip pocket. Right. Normally you think of those kinds of games as having to be light games, and to find something that, that packs that amount of depth into something that's that small and, and is really playable and really fun, as long as you'll invest a little bit of time in kind of just learning the flow of the game. There's If you're a war gamer... This is the perfect solution to always having a war game on hand. You never yeah, have exactly. a, never have to have the excuse of oh, I want to play a war game, but don't have my stuff with me. <laughs> so, uh, any final thoughts here? Or are we moving on? No, a great game. Check it out. Great price too for yep. what you get. <laughs> so, first game is Battleground Fantasy Warfare. Check it out. Okay, second game off the list tonight <laughs> is To Court the King, another dice fest, albeit much lighter than the first. Uh, to Court the King was co-published by Amigo and Rio Grande this year. Designed by Tom Lehman, it's for two to five players ages 10 and up. You can find it on the internet for between 20 and 24 bucks. To Court the King casts you in the role of Royal Petitioner. Using your powers of persuasion, you'll be trying to gain the support of as many court officials as you can. If you're really good, you might even garner the support of the king and the queen. (laughs) So during the game, your powers of persuasion are represented by dice. You'll begin the game rolling three dice, and as you gain favor with the court officials, you could find yourself rolling as many as 12 dice. Now when a player finally wins the king card, that triggers a (laughs) final round, and the player who rolls the most dice of a single number during that final round is the winner of the game. So let's take a quick peek at some of the components. Um, you get 60 character cards, and I think I would classify these more of boards. I mean, these are really yeah. super heavyweight cards that you never shuffle in this game, but if you were to shuffle these, you'd bend them in half. <laughs> yeah, so they're easy. really nice. More Think of them as boards. Um, the character cards, there's 60 of them. There's actually 21 unique different type of characters, so there are repeats. There's anywhere from one to five of the same character, so there's 60 of them total. There's basically four different things on um, a character card. First thing is the title, just that court official's title. Um, there's a cost. Basically, a cost is how many dice you're going to need, or exactly what on dice are you going to need to attain to afford this particular card. Uh, once you've met that cost, the other thing that's on the card is the ability. So once you own a card, it's going to provide you with a certain ability. And these abilities are going to be all kinds of crazy things that augment dice that you have rolled already, which is really cool. Then on the back side, there's actually a Roman numeral on each of these cards. And I'll explain how that kind of comes into play a little bit later. So you also get 12 dice. Now these are really nice marble dice. I like them a lot. However, in um, all the games that we played, we went ahead and gave each player 12 dice. And having done that, I can't 
I think it was much easier and much cooler to play this game with each person having 12 dice versus passing the dice around all the time. Yeah, I mocked Dave for bringing <laughs> 60 dice to play a game that only needed 12, but he, he's totally right. It, it worked out really cool. <laughs> um, you get five double-sided reference sheets. Um, these basically just show you the costs and the abilities of each of the characters. Um, and then you get a plastic start player figure, which is this little 3D plastic shield with like cross swords. It's pretty cool. Um, so the setup of the game is actually very easy. If you're playing with less than five people, you're going to have to kind of trim out some of the characters. If not, you're going to use them all. Then you're going to lay out these cards in the center of the table in six rows based on the Roman numeral that's on the back of the card. So all the cards with Roman numeral run one are going to go in the first row, two in the second row, so on. This doesn't really have any effect on the gameplay, but allows you to visualize which cards you can collect because everything in Roman numeral one is going to take three dice to be able to afford the cost of that card. In the Roman numeral two, four dice, five dice, so all the way up to the king queen, it's going to take seven dice to, to actually collect them. Um, so now the kind of uh, the little crazy part with this game, um, you choose a start player in any way that you want. Now listen to this very carefully. This is wacky. <laughs> Starting with the start player, play goes around the table clockwise. However, the start player figure moves around the table counterclockwise. <laughs> so basically, the last player of every round is going to get to go two turns in a row. So if you were to envision four players, um, the start player, player one would go, then two, then three, then four. Now, player one is going to pass the start player token back to player four, who is going to take another turn... And now it's going to be player one's turn again, then two, then three. Then three will take another turn, then four. So it's not hard, but it's just so different than we're used to that it it's was hard to grasp. Easy to get tripped up by it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember arguing about, well, why could he have possibly done this? But after a few, a handful of rounds, we kind of figured out that it was a way to even out. That player in the last position didn't have the advantage to get some of the cards that you really wanted maybe gone by the time it's your turn. So you get that turn, and then you immediately get another one, which gives you kind of first call on some of those things. Definitely seems like a game balance. Yeah, exactly. Thing. So it, it makes sense. It just takes a few things. So let's just jump right in and talk about one turn. Um, pretty easy game. Um, on your turn, you're going to roll all the dice in your supply. At the beginning of the game, this is going to be three, but as the game goes on, this number will increase. If it doesn't, you're going to lose. But you hope to have six, seven, eight dice by the end of the game. Um, the dice that you just rolled are called your active dice. You have to set aside at least one of these active dice. If there's any active dice left, meaning you didn't set them all aside, then you're going to re-roll what's left. Once again, these become active, and now you're going to have to set at least one of these aside. You're going to keep this up until you've set all your active dice aside or until you've had three rolls. Now, think Yahtzee. Exactly. It's totally Yahtzee. What you're trying to accomplish is to set aside a combination of dice that will satisfy the cost of one of those character cards. Note that you can only acquire one character card per turn. So even if you set aside dice that would allow you to purchase more than one, you can still only get just one of those guys. Now, the reason why the dice are called active is because only when a die is active can it be affected by the abilities of those character cards that you have collected on previous turns. So you roll them, they're active. Now you can do all kinds of crazy chains. Um, 
Character cards can only be used once per turn, so a turn might go something like this. I roll four dice. I And what you do to show that you can only use it once is to tap it or rotate your card 45 degrees. Right. You might roll four dice, tap one card to re-roll one of the ones that you didn't like. Tap another card to add two pips to one that you like. Tap another one to... Um, bring a die in that's value six. So there's all these kinds of crazy abilities that you can do, and trust me, you need them. And the combination of them is what makes the game so cool. But you keep playing the game in this fashion until somebody is finally able to roll seven of a kind, and they're able to collect the king and the queen cards. At this point, you go ahead and finish the current round that you're playing, and then you're going to play one last final round where you're going to be trying to roll the most of a single number that you can. Sort of the end game. (laughs) Exactly. So everything you've played up to this point was building up to this final round. Um, Basically, what you're going to do on this roll-off the, uh, the the person who collected the king and the queen is going to get a couple benefits. The queen will bring in a die of any value, and she will allow you to tie for victory. A lot of times you have to one-up the person to win. If you're the queen, the player with the queen, you can just tie. Kind of explain how this works. Um, you go ahead and pass the little turn marker back like it was. Everybody plays in turn order. When it gets to the player with the queen, you skip over them, and then you'll come back to them so they can roll. On your turn, you're going to use everything in your power to get, you know, as many of one number you can. So we'll say the first person pulls off rolling like six fours. The next person, in order for them to win the game, they have to get either six fives or seven of anything. So you can either beat them by the value of the die, (laughs) same number of die, or a larger quantity of die. Regardless of the value on it, so it's like a ladder, a ladder game, exactly, in exactly. dice form, basically. So you go all the way around until it gets to the person with the queen. They roll. Whoever has the most, the the largest quantity of dice with a single number wins the game. That's all there is to it. It's it's a neat little game. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I thought you know on the surface you could just say yeah it's just Yahtzee on steroids. And you'd be right on one right. hand, but I think you'd be missing a lot if you just wrote it off as that, because the interaction between the the different cards and the different character possibilities allows you to hedge the sort of randomness of the, the dice to a... Not totally, because it is a dice right, game exactly. after all, but it allows you to control, and you could actually have a plan. I mean, granted, the dice might not agree with you, but that's where, if you have the cards, you can adjust your roles to try to go after a particular character where you might need three threes of a kind or exactly. you know some other combination you can try to get the character cards that will sort of funnel you towards those particular um, ones that will give you other advantages in later rounds and later roles so to me i thought that was really really well thought out and I, w- I was totally surprised at how much control you had over rolling this many dice and mm-hmm. that was what made it fun you know that you had just this almost innumerable innumerable amount of things that you could do. Well, I could tip, tap this, re-roll this, then set it aside, match this, use this to add three pips from this die to that die, do this. It, the cool thing is it didn't really cause any analytical paralysis. It, it could have. It seems like you could go, yeah. okay, I can do 500 million things, but the lightness of the game, even though you do have some control over it, kept it from going quite that crazy. Well, and the limited number of characters, because as the game goes on, you're going to sort of winnow down because they're not... Every single person isn't going to have access to every single character. So your choices are going to become more and more limited to where you're only going to be rolling, oh, I can only go after those two because that's all that's left on the board, which I think is a nice uh, game balancing. It's funny, the more I think about it, that 
for to say about a dice game that the thing you like the most about it is how non-random it can be <laughs> right, at yeah, some points. Exactly. And the, you know, even though there is an element of randomness to it, obviously, um, that you do feel like, even if it's just the illusion of control, <laughs> exactly. you do feel like you have the possibility of control by having these characters and being able to widge your dice rolls in a particular way. That's... That's really interesting. And, and uh, one of our games was with five people and had some players who aren't necessarily fans of huge amounts of randoms, randomness, and they really enjoyed the game. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. The, the only knock that I have on the game, having said that I really like this game, is I was kind of hoping that this game would be an entry-level, non-gamers kind of diversion away from something like Yahtzee. Like, okay... Somebody wants to play Yahtzee, and you're like, oh, hey, I got this game that's kind of neater than mm-hmm. Yahtzee. So I pulled it out and tried it with my wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't as light as I thought it was because it was kind of confusing for them. So oh. I was hoping because I'm, I'm kind of there, were, there were so many possibilities. They haven't played games where you know, you're confronted with that many possibilities on each turn, and you're trying to reason out what you want to do. Not that they couldn't do that, but they weren't familiar with those type of games. So using this game is <laughs> as kind of a stepping stone or something to replace a basic simple game like Yahtzee. It might not be able to do that like I was hoping that it would. It's light, but not light enough for it, that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But by the same token, I think that's kind of why we liked it as much as, <laughs> as we you're did. You're probably right. You're probably right <laughs> Exactly. There. So I'm kind of taking both sides of that argument but uh <laughs> needless to say a, a very very cool little game um i guess the only other thing it's it do, did kind of have a hefty price tag yeah once you open the box and you see the quality of the dice and the quality of the cards and the stuff that's in there you're, you know you're like well you know maybe it wasn't that bad but but it definitely seemed it's 12 it comes dice and 60 cards for 30 dollars yeah that is a little high you know a little a little stiff but um of the dice games that have come out you know in recent memory that are like this this is one of the best 20 bucks i would say this is a must have i would right. say yeah. it's it's fills a niche that right. there aren't really many games that, exactly that and there and there are a handful of places where you can get it for that so mm-hmm. i would recommend that and i don't think you would be unhappy yeah i don't think you'd be sorry with it either right <laughs> So, second game off the list, To Court the King, another dice-festing game, but very cool. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So we had some some great guesses and wonders of wonders. Wonder. We actually had a legitimate a mystery connection winner. Wow! <laughs> this week that's a, like only the second and maybe we, third time period yeah. ever. Might yeah, I, I think you're right. And this connection was left field. Uh, yeah, how this person got this is. And this was a totally late entry. This is like right skating yeah, under the wire entry. <laughs> wow. So if if you remember, we do the Backshelf Spotlight Mystery Connection game. There's a connection. Last episode, it was Seasons, the Calendar Rummy game, and Mississippi Queen were the two games. So um, at least a couple guesses of note before we get to the correct one. We had Travis Sensala in Rolling Stone, Minnesota. Um his connection was that both games used symbolic terms. Seasons uses the symbols such as stars, moons, planets, and the sun. Meanwhile, Mississippi Queen has passengers that are referred to as southern 
bells. So I thought that was really creative out With there. With the symbols, awesome. If we hadn't had a winner, that one would have that been really been... high up on the list. Uh, of course, then we had our, our pal, the last emperor of planet Earth, Dave <laughs> Shapiro in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who his uh, the best of his guesses was that the connection was Goldland, which he... Goldland? <laughs> Is another game listed on Board Game Geek. So he uses the rankings of both uh, Seasons and Mississippi Queen and does a little mathematical calculation, subtracting one ra- ranking from the other and coming up with a th- you know a number, a number, and then looked up that, up that number, ranking. and that it happened to be Goldland, and so that's the connection between the games. Oh my god! I wish I thought of that. That's <laughs> that, that's awesome. an awesome connection, but <laughs> <That's> scary awesome. <laughs> Unfortunately, not the connection that we're looking for, David. But uh, we do have a winner. We have a wiener. Dave, you wow. want to let people know? Let me see here. We got <laughs> Richard from Columbus. Like Stephen said, sneaks just under the wire with this entry. And he says the connection is music or songs in that Seasons is a Steve Miller band song. And... The uh, Mississippi Queen is actually a song from the group Mountain. Bingo. Bing, 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 bing. bing. Amazing. I cannot believe. When Stephen told me what this connection was, I'm like, there is no way that anybody is getting this connection. Yep. Totally, totally amazing. Congratulations, Richard. Send us your information. Yep. You are the new owner of a glorious pair of Spiel dice. Yep. They will be coming your way very shortly. I I am completely flabbergasted that anybody got this. I am too. I thought for sure that this was a stumper, and when I even thought of it, I was like, well, there's no way anybody's going to get that, <laughs> but I'm glad to be proved wrong, Richard. Yeah, congratulations. So, that congratulations. was awesome. Uh, so again, keep these in mind. We're going to have connection between the two games on, on the Back Shelf Spotlight this week, um, and send your guesses in to Stephen at thespiel.net. Or Dave at thespiel.net. And without further ado, let's jump right in and talk about the, the two games this uh, week. New connection. We've got got a couple um, kids games in the back shelf spotlight today a couple games um, one uh, kind of old the other one not too old but both it both Steve and I have fond memories of, of playing definitely um, so and they do have a connection um, the first game up is the magnificent race it's a game that was published in 1975 by Parker Brothers it was designed by Bill Cook it's for two to four players ages eight and up like we said out of print. Um, eBay, I've, I see copies of this on eBay all the time for fair prices. So if it sounds interesting, you should be able to run over there and get a copy. So in The Magnificent Race, it's the turn of the century, and you're competing in a race around the world. The race starts and ends in New York City. During the race, you'll use four types of transportation, car, boat, balloon, and airplane. But watch out for Dastardly Dan. He's heard about your race, and he's decided to enter just to cause you trouble. <laughs> so Magnificent Race is basically a very simplistic roll and move style of game with a really cool, albeit gimmicky component that kind of makes this definitely worth having. So let's just quickly look over the components. You get a neat board. Um, each player has their own little vehicle board to keep track of their different modes of transportation. Um, the movers or the pawns are these really neat plastic arrow shaped pieces. Each person gets five marbles in the game. We'll explain why in a minute. Um, there's a race progress board. Think of it Think of it like as a cardboard cribbage board to keep track yeah. of everybody's <laughs> movement around the world. Um, there's a deck of advantage cards. And then the creme de la creme of components, <laughs> the magnificent race spinner. 
So since that's the primary neatness of this game, I'm just going to explain the races and how they play out because this is really cool. Imagine kind of like a roulette wheel, but there are no separations. There, It's just a bowl, like a cupped bowl, and there's a little divot near the center just big enough for one marble. So on a race, let's say that you have landed on a space that says there's going to be a balloon race. Now, everybody's going to be in on the balloon race. You automatically get to throw one of your colors of marbles in this little bowl, this little spinning bowl. However, if you've acquired certain advantages um, for your balloon, you may be able to throw in up to all five of your marbles. So everybody determines how many marbles they get to throw in for this race. Of course, Dastardly Dan, his marbles <laughs> always in the race. Once you've got all the marbles in there, you spin this little thing. All of the marbles are forced to the outside. <laughs> then you hurry up and you press the little spinner button. The spinner stops, but inertia keeps the marbles oh, going right, around. Right. <laughs> and then as they start to slow down, they start to fall in this elliptical pattern towards mm. the center, down towards that little <laughs> one recess thing where only one marble can fit. And they get ever so close, but they miss. Then another one gets close. You're like, oh, that's me. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, that's me. So it's, it's really, really cool. <laughs> Eventually, one marble falls in there. That's the winner of the race, and they actually get to move three cities. So from New York to Chicago to San Francisco, <laughs> maybe on to Tokyo. You take that marble out. Now you have a second lap. That person's going to win second. Whoever gets that, second place, two spaces, third place. You continue playing the game like this, trying to make money, buy advantages for your modes of transportation, and then eventually win these crazy races where you get to spin this little spinner. This game is a hoot. I loved it when I was a kid. <laughs> if anybody were to ask me if I wanted to get out and play it now, I'd say absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> I've actually never played this with, with I'll, you. I'll have to bring it over some night. This. <laughs> it's all of 15 minutes to play. <laughs> you wax poetic about it so often <laughs> with the uh, the spinner that I definitely need to play this one. It was, it was always one that came out top of our list when we were younger. So. <laughs> cool. So that's the first one in the list. Magnificent Race. Has a connection to... <laughs> Until I take over. <laughs> Red, help me. We are running out of time. The Omega Virus. <laughs> so this game was designed in 1992. If you can't already tell, it has an audio component to it, Red, which we're hurry. going to <laughs> we're going to play while I'm discussing the game Enter here. Um, it was designed by Michael Gray, who also did Fortress America, Samurai Swords, and Dragon Master, which we covered on the Backshelf Spotlight. Um, Dave's pushing buttons One. while we go on here. <laughs> uh, it was designed by Milton Bradley. Zero. Security breach. Security breach at two one zero. Watch out! Watch Red out! Energize two shield. <laughs> It's too much fun. <laughs> We're just going to sit here and listen to the game the whole time. <laughs> so it's for one to four players. It's a 15 to 30 minute game. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but I know that you can definitely find it on places like eBay and, and online auction sites easily. So you and three three of the other greatest heroes of the planet Earth must save Battlestat, State, uh, Battlestat 1, the space station, from the evil Omega virus. Using a computer, you explore the station, collecting access cards, red, yellow, and blue, and weapons, the Megatron, Decoder, and Disruptor, all of which you must order to locate... You, all of which you need in order to find and destroy the Omega virus. The battle set pleads for help, and the virus taunts you to locate uh, the room in which the virus is Yellow, hiding. Help 
As you, you can hear the station is, is asking for help in the background while you're playing this game. You have this little computer console that sits in the middle that has four buttons, pass, zero, one, and two. It can be set for different lengths and skill levels Yellow, of games. The, we are running out of time. the audio clues are going to guide you through the game with constant taunts from the Omega virus itself. The console also houses the probes, access cards, and weapons that you're going to need to gather to uh, actually Yellow, defeat the Omega me. virus. Try and stop <laughs> you human scum. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. You just watch me. <laughs> so there are four chunky spaceman figures that represent each player. There are four probes that are automated helper <laughs> robots. Too late. This station is mine. I win. <laughs> Dang it. Dang. That's the result of a lot of the games when you <laughs> exactly. play the Omega Virus. <laughs> At least I'm off the clock now. <laughs> so there are four probes that are automatic helper robots, which give players an extra turn and help them find things. There are 12 detailed, colorful, clip-on weapons uh, that you attach that you're going to find. There are also um, access cards that you're going to get that will give you access to different um, parts of the station. Um, and there's a big... Um, station board with four airlocks, one for each player, and four wedge-shaped flippers, I don't know how else to describe them, that uh, fold over and cover parts of the board as the Omega virus. Uh, we didn't have that happen in the little audio clues, but as the game goes on, uh, parts of the station are going to close up, and you use these flippers to cover parts of the board so you know what parts of the board you can get to. It's very simple, not really roll and move. You you move your little guy into the different rooms. There's a code number. You type the code into the little computer console. It will tell you the result of your search. You might find something good. You might find something bad. At the end of each search, you're going to hear a little code. Um, at the beginning of the game, before the game starts, each person puts in a little secret code into the computer, and you're going to want to listen at the end of each searching that you do for the code that the computer is going to spit out. This code is going to let you know whether or not the Omega virus is actually in that room. If you ever hear your secret code in one of those rooms, then you know that's the place you need to go back to once you've gotten all the different weapons that you're going to need to destroy the Omega virus. So it's this nice race against the clock. The The cool part about it is definitely the, the electronic component just adds that element of drama and, hurry up, I've got my probe <laughs> and my thing to... to Try to find the Omega virus. That it, it's just a hoot. I think it uh, is a blast. <laughs> and and how can you go wrong with a game that trash talk is trash talks you right, exactly? <laughs> and if you are adults and you good you get good at it, there's a skill level that forces you to play the game in ten minutes. Yeah, which uh, so that's I, that's pretty tough. Yeah, I, we would end up with the virus taunting us Whoa, most of the time. Exactly, puny <laughs> <Cutie> humans. <laughs> so again, remember the two games are the Omega virus. And the Magnificent Race. And there's a connection between these two games, so email us your guesses at stephenatthespiel.net. Or dave at thespiel.net. And remember, the winner will walk away with a cool set of Spiel dice. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the goobermeisters have for us this week. 
Okay, once again, it's time for the Goober. And today's Goober game is a game called Lifeboats, co-published by Z-Man and Argentum Verlog. Came came out in 2006. It was designed by Ronald Wetterling. It's for three to six players, ages 12 and up. Retails for about 50 bucks. You can find it for 35 to 40 $40. This is a reprint of the 1993 Cosmos game, Reta Seek Verkan, or Each Man for Himself. A <laughs> um, little story behind this guy. Your ship has just collided with a reef. All your sailors have set out to find land in one of the seven lifeboats. Each turn, the players get to vote on which lifeboat moves closer to safety, which boat springs a leak, and who gets thrown overboard to prevent the lifeboat from sinking. <laughs> so this is... This is a game that neither Stephen nor I own, but this gets rave reviews from everybody as just being this awesome voting slash negotiation slash backstabbing game. That's not why it's in this segment. It's in this segment because of one specific type of goober. So the goober that comes with this game is obviously a game board, some wooden leak discs, 61 cards, 42 wooden sailor pawns, and then the biggie of them all, <laughs> seven wooden lifeboats. Not just little, everyday wooden little boats. These things are about three quarters of an inch thick, about three or four inches long, and about an inch and a half to two inches wide. There's seven of them. They're painted in bright colors. They're huge. They each have like six recessed areas in them where you can actually put the sailor pawns in these. So to me, that I mean, that's just, I would buy this... <laughs> Whatever, you know, just for the little goober. But to hear that this is an awesome game to boot, this is one that I have to get in my collection. And I will note that if anybody wants to see some really cool video of this, Scott from Board Games with Scott, one of his video podcasts covers this game. Oh, nice. So it'd be a good way to go over and look at that. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I have any wooden components of this size in any of my other games. I can't There might be a any. couple things that come close, but... These are big boats, baby. <laughs> so check this out for a little bit of goober. Lifeboats. The Game Sommelier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. Here's Dave with this week's challenge. If everybody will remember from last episode, it was Stephen's turn on the hot seat. We had a great challenge sent to us by Matthew Eskridge, and the challenge was that Stephen had to find five games where some of the players were blind. He had to find five games that were enjoyable for both the blind and the sighted players. And as an added stipulation, the games had to have some type of physical component. So let's see what you came up with. <laughs> well, I, this is a great challenge. I really, really like this one. Um, it, it was tough. It was very tough. I didn't realize how tough it was going to be until you stop and think how visual uh, a lot of board games are and how much that can trip you up on not being able to to play some of the games that you would love. I mean, it it really gives you pause to think about a whole avenue of fun that's that's not cut off but is is limited in a way that I hadn't really fully appreciated until I stopped to think, wow, 
how many of these games would be really difficult without doing major surgery to the game and coming up with something. So that was basically my first criteria on top of that, um, his own, because I found several articles of people finding ways that you could modify or putting like little Braille labels on Uh things, which I think is totally fine and understandable since there aren't you know, many game companies making Braille versions of games, which I think is maybe an untapped market for a business exactly. to, to come out with, you know, a lot of these nice Euro games in a form that, that visually um, impaired people could actually be able to play. That would be excellent. My goal was to be able to say just the average gamer, what games could you take off the shelf and be able to um, play without having to make any significant modifications at all, with the one stipulation of being that if you're playing with someone who's uh, sight impaired, you probably have a deck of maybe Braille cards, playing cards, standard type game uh, equipment right. that you might have around that you're not going to have to do anything special to right. the games, but you might have a deck of Braille playing cards. That's the only, there's one in there that's a little bit of a hedge okay. for that for that reason. Um, so with that in mind, here's my list. Um, the first game is Hive. Um, which was 2001. John Yanni and uh, is the designer. Gigamic is the publisher. Uh, it's two-player game, 15 minutes. Uh, the most recent edition of this game has Bakelite hexagonal pieces. It's basically a type of war game. Um, has big, chunky uh, hexagonal Bakelite pieces with carved into them these different insects, and you're sort of trying to surround. You play all these hexagonal things place all these hexagonal tiles out to try to create your swarm and surround your opponent. Um, this is a game I haven't played, but we've had lots of people say, why haven't you played this game? <laughs> um, that we definitely need to, to add to our list at some point. But due to the fact that the tiles are big enough, and I think you could feel the different types of bugs from having... I've, I've messed with the components. I think you would be able to tell the different components apart uh, to be able to play this game if you were sight impaired. I don't have any personal experience, so it's a little bit of a stretch, right. but I think this one could work. I, I've played this game before, and it is a great game, and it is even inter- interestingly tactile for sighted players. So I'm hoping that you're right, and that you know somebody who is you know blind or can't see all the way would be able to feel. Now I'm not sure you know once the game gets underway. You know, I, your, I think your opponent would have to announce their move, and so you would become familiar with how the board yeah. layout is. But I think it's very possible that, that's that they the, would. That's the interesting thing in thinking about how much of a board game is based on your ability to sort of map out in your mind right. where things are and not being trying to put myself in the place of a blind person and understanding how how they might orient spatially things like that exactly. to understand what's next to what. If they can feel it, does that give them a, enough of a sense or do they have to have – I'm sure they have workarounds in their own way of, of putting ordering their universe that would right. make that, that kind of thing make sense. But it definitely gives you pause to, to understand how – they would try to approach any game with understanding what's next to what. So well, I would say, given given what little we know about their you know sensitivity to touch and having used these tiles, I, I definitely think that they could differentiate from tile to tile. Okay, so I'm going to give that a thumbs up. Okay, next on the list is Oil Man. Um, there's no <laughs> listing for the the publication date and no designer credited. The Northern Game Company is the. Um, Game is the publisher. It's for two to eight players. They say two hours. I think it takes way less than that to play this game. This game 
I, have we covered this on Goober? I don't think so yet. Maybe we did it very early on, and I'm just spacing it. Might it might have been in our buyer's guide. I don't know. Maybe. We it has about such it an interesting component. So the whole board is basically this big, thick piece of plastic. It has a world map on the top. All these little holes in there that you're going to put your little oil drilling um, rigs into of different lengths. And basically you buy the different lengths. of You're deciding how far deep you're going to drill. Um, the reason that this would work, I think, for non-sighted people is that basically where you – it doesn't matter whether you're drilling in the middle of South America or the middle of the Indian Ocean – Depending, it really depends upon your length and your this tactile feel because you're going to slide your little oil rig down into the board, and by I don't even know what mechanism is inside <laughs> this board, but in some places it's going to go all the way down, in some places it's not going to go all the way down, and if it if it stops short of whatever you know length shaft you're trying to drill, then you're either going to get a penalty and you're going to you know you're not going to get oil in that spot, or you're going to cash in and you're going to get lots of oil. Um, Basically, you could easily feel the board and tell where you have, you know, you, the only thing people might have to do is guide you to where you have your ones, where you, right. where you already have your ones, because there's certain bonuses if you can kind of group your oil rigs together, if, if memory serves. But other than that, you can just kind of do piecemeal here and there and put your rigs down wherever you want. I think this would be a blast. It's not necessarily the most deep game in the right. world, but has a really cool mechanic. And for the goober aspect alone, you know, I, I think that would be cool. I actually think there's a chance that they would have an advantage over the sighted people. Because oh, maybe. We, we have some phantom idea that just by looking at the board, we can see where <laughs> you can drill. There's no way. You're just, it's just pot luck. So that's, that's a good choice. Two th- that's second thumbs up. <laughs> uh, moving on, um, one we talked about here before, I think, on Backshelf, or, oh no, we actually covered it on the list, is Lexio. Oh, okay. Um, tile domino type game. Again, right. we're working on the same principle as exactly. um, Hive. I thought about Mahjong, but I think there's too, there are too many symbols on a Mahjong tile. So right. this was kind of the in-between one with Lexio. You've got the domino-shaped tiles with a symbol and a number that I would... I. I hope that you'd be able to maybe tell the the number at least and the the type of, of right and the opponents could call out the tiles that they led so you would know what you need right to better and you would know your tiles just by feeling them because you only have to know yours and whether or not yours it, can do it or not exactly. and it's basically you know it's a ladder game or like Great Dalmudi or these other things where someone leads a pair of twos you have to beat those those pairs of, um, I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's, that's the basic <laughs> right. gist of the game. So there's number three. I would definitely give that a thumbs up also. If there's anybody out there, you know, who might be able to test these series, we'd love to hear. Absolutely. Because we're just kind of going on, you know, a presumption. Yeah. You which know? I could be wrong. I mean, I could right, totally but, could be wrong. But, I'll admit that fully. But absolutely that it seems like it should work and that'd be great. <laughs> um, moving on here, we have Corridor. Um, which was 1997. Uh, Marco Marchese is the designer. Another gigamic, kind of funny that two of the right. five come from the same company. Two to four players, plays in about 15 minutes. Um, it's a nice little strategy game. You have a wooden board that has a grid cut out of it, so it's tactile. You can feel the grid squares. You have little planks that are off to the side, and each person has a peg. And your object is to get your peg across the board, but you're going to be playing these little planks onto the board onto these little grids so you can easily tell they'll slide into the grid and you can feel where they are to tell whether it's a legal spot or not and you're trying to guide your peg across the board by moving it one square at a time or placing these things the only thing you might have to do to help a blind friend is let them know where your peg is exactly. since they can't tell the colors because that was the other thing how much color is dependent i kept thinking of games and then i come down to, oh 
the color. pieces are two different colors, and if you can't see, you can't tell the colors apart. Right. Um, that you just have to say, oh, here's my peg, and guide their hand to that, so they have a sense of where your peg is in relation to theirs. If they're wanting to block you or you know stop you from right. doing what you're wanting to do, um, so there's number four. I say this one might take a little more effort on the part, you know. Of oh, the really? Person. I, I think it feels like it would. Of course, I think it would I'm be completely less. coming at this. I think having played this game and seen it, I think it might take a little extra work. I'm still going to give you a thumbs up, but I think it might take the person definitely hmm. wanting to put some effort and time into learning this game and having played it several times before they got a feel for... See, I was thinking this is one that I could picture in my head, even without feeling the board, because really? you could say, imagine a grid of nine by right. nine squares exactly. and being able to say, oh, I'm placing a plank here and being able to orient you that could, you could have, you could in be a way that, right. that would make sense. And because you could feel, I mean, they're all straight lines that you could feel a straight line and say, oh, where there's my plank in that spot. But who, you know, we're, we're yeah, exactly. no pun intended, but we're kind of flying blind yeah, here yeah, as exactly. well. So I but, hope, yeah. I hope we're doing a yeah. decent but job of throwing some ideas We want nothing more there. than these to work perfectly. <laughs> so I'm going to give that a thumbs up. Last one. This one's a little bit of a cheater. It has a component because it has a deck of cards. Okay. And that is Mafia. Uh, it beats, beats oh, hey. the, the, it comes at it from a different angle. I, I know he said it has to have physical components. This one, the component isn't, you know, the whole game doesn't revolve around the components, but you do have to have the components at the beginning. You probably, most people are probably more aware of this game as, are you a werewolf? Which right. is kind of the more, uh, the version that's been boxed up and sold exactly. to people in this more advanced form. Mafia boils it down to all you need is a deck of cards. You deal them out. The people who get the kings are the mafiosos. You adjust the number of kings based on the number of people that you're playing with. Um, and then there's this whole social aspect to it's a sort of mo game of mob mentality where you're trying to figure out the villagers who are not the mafia are trying to figure out who the mafia are and the mafia are trying to off the villagers <laughs> one by one. Now, the obvious wrinkle would be, okay, how do you deal with the fact that at, at night everyone shuts their eyes except the mafiosos exactly. and they have to pick out someone, aha. They have contact up. with each other, right? They have to know each other. They have to have other. contact. And okay. it's usually you open your eyes and you point at someone. If you have a set of polyhedral dice, I think it could work. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because you just have a... Each person gets a polyhedral die in their hand. So if one of the blind people happens to become a mafioso, let's say you have 12 people, you give them a 12-sided die they go and around. you number each person and so instead of them pointing to a person they would hand the mediator with the face of the die face up to the person that they want to select and the other person could do the same thing and and communicate back and forth via dice and so they could go oh, okay well they're wanting number eight to be killed well i want number 12 and they would have to i mean there's still that negotiation that occurs mm -hmm. but it would occur in communication via dice that was my right. little hedge as a way that it's a game you wouldn't necessarily think of being able to play in a way it's almost all verbal and right. those kind of clues which i would think would be pretty interesting to play right. with someone who isn't sighted but i thought that would be you know it's a little bit of a hedge but i'm just throwing it out there no i think <laughs> i think you get a thumbs up just for creativity there that's i think that'd be awesome to try that out and see if that actually works that'd be cool and i'm sure that you know if even if that doesn't quite do it there's definitely got to be a way there to it's, do it that it seems like at it's least workable. set the you know <laughs> picture for doing something like that so boom five thumbs up awesome We'll, we'll have, have to, to see wait if, to hear uh, back from Matthew and see what he thinks. I'm, and no word games either. That was the other thing. Right, no that word was hard games. to do without no, I'm word just curious what made Matthew come up with this. You know, yeah. whether he has some friends, you know, that are, you know, have lost their vision or whether maybe just, even Matthew himself was, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, 
we, I would love to have these games put to the test and see if, if they work. <laughs> or if somebody has a better list and thinks this is just, we're totally off the wall here, no, let, us, a, let us know. That was I, a great <laughs> list because you stayed away from all the gimmies. You know, I mean, anything that was specifically designed for a blind person in mind. I just thought, you know, if I had someone come over who was blind, what could I pull out that, you know, if I had on my shelf that would work? And exactly. It, we could at least give it a shot with those. Yeah. There's no guarantee they'd work, but I think you could Absolutely. at least give those a shot. So Good um, good, good job. That, that awesome challenge. I think that's yeah. big big high marks to <laughs> to him for putting that putting me to, to the test yeah, there. that was neat. So are you ready for your... Uh, <laughs> Your challenge. Uh, probably not, but go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, we're coming up on our listener's choice episode here. We're right. about to get fully into that here in the mailbag here with some of the results. So for the listener's choice episodes, of course, we have to have a listener-generated uh, challenge for you, obviously. Of course. And I wasn't satisfied with doing just one oh. listener's challenge. Oh, I had God. to do two listener challenges and combine them into one, sort of, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter kind of thing. Okay, so, now I'm very frightened. <laughs> I found two that... Uh, Unbeknownst to either one of them, just dovetailed perfectly. Oh, sweet. So the two uh, contributors for this challenge, it's a double-barreled challenge, come from Cameron Iwan in Douglas, Nebraska, and Ian Mackey from Parts Unknown, because I didn't okay. figure out where he's from. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thanks to Cameron and Ian for, for this challenge. So your challenge is going to be to find five games for a lost party lost the television, the television. show uh, viewing party um, <laughs> but each of the games have to suit or evoke some aspect of one of the characters from the show so a game <laughs> that you could sit down and play with let's say Mr. Locke or you know Henry or you know the son or okay. any any of them yeah it's okay. your choice which characters uh, you, you could you could stick with one character if you want but um, I think it might be more fun if you kind of played with a, <laughs> at least a couple different characters. I, I like that, so, picking games that invoke the particular characteristics of one of the characters on the show. Mm-hmm. That's very fun. So that that part, the, that, the sort of invoking the character part came from Ian, and the, the lost, lost party thing. came from Cameron. And awesome. I thought, you know, those actually work pretty well together. Yeah, that's fun. So I combined them, so... I I don't know what you'll come up with, but I think uh, the sky's the limit in a way. Yeah, exactly. That That's going to be very fun. I have no idea what I'm going to do, but that's... Just, just stay away from those Dharma Initiative games. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, there's the whole line could happen yeah. with those. <laughs> just hit the button. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. First things first, we have to we have a couple thank yous and a couple nicknames to award oh, yeah. to uh, our different uh, uh, donors to uh, the Spiel cause here. So we want to thank the first two. We do this with all the people who donate to the Spiel. Thank you very much. We give you a game theme nickname. So we have two who go on to the, the Hall of Fame here uh, that will be listed on the website. So we have uh, Scotty Knucklebones Dicky to add to the list and... Mark Snake Eyes Wilder. <laughs> so thanks very much, uh, Mark and Scotty. We absolutely appreciate it. It helps yes, us thank you. defray the bandwidth costs and, and you know helps us keep the spiel coming to you every other week. And, and just thanks a ton. So we have the listener's poll to, to deal with since we have the listener's choice episode coming up here. The, the, the results are in for the listener's choice episode. Remember, you get to program the show for episode 28. And we asked you what game should we play off the list in the next episode. And we got some pretty uh, interesting results. Dave, you want to give us the rundown on the, the poll? 
Sure. Well, we'll go ahead and list them all. So number number one, the game that you guys most voted for for Stephen and I to play was Democker. I don't think that was a huge surprise. It kind no. of <laughs> kind of felt we knew that that was coming. Um, second on the list was Railroad this was, Tycoon. This was a tough battle. Yeah, yeah there was a huge battle between three or four games for the second spot. So, once again, Democker and Railroad Tycoon are the two games we're going to be playing in order of the way that the rest of the games fared. In third place, Game of Thrones. Fourth place, Vegas Showdown. Uh, fifth place, Hacienda. Um, sixth place, Dreamblade. Seventh place, Landlord. And, unfortunately, On Guard didn't even get any votes. Uh, Apparently, no, they just no didn't. No love for the pirate game. I thought the pirate Man. game would at least elicit a few pity votes, yeah, if nothing more. Yeah, it means pirates. So, we're really <laughs> looking forward to the next episode. Democker and Railroad Tycoon, two pretty... <laughs> Pretty meaty, fun games. That's going to be great. Yeah, it should be fun. And remember, um, we'll take all your suggestions still for the listeners' choice episode. We're going to program the show uh, for Backshelf and um, all the other things and everything. are going to come from you, the listeners. So we've got lots of them in the hopper already, but our minds could be changed and swayed. Um, so exactly. obviously send us mail at steven at thespiel.net. Or dave at thespiel.net. And uh, check out... Uh, you know what's on the website and give us give us your thoughts <laughs> cool um so we have a new poll of course since Excellent. the old polls ended um the new poll is going to be what's your favorite historical period or genre for uh, board games so we've got we're going to have choices like ancient egypt ancient greece and rome ancient china uh medieval europe renaissance feudal japan napoleonic era industrial revolution world war ii or modern that's, kind of that's cool. Runs the gamut yeah, there exactly. just to see where what people's historical. I, I know I have are. my favorites, so we'll, <laughs> yeah. ha- we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> so there's there's the next poll. So cool. Um, we're gonna save a fair number of the mailbag entries for the listeners' choice episode, but we had some good highlights. We couldn't not do some right. of the good ones because there are definitely some fun ones here that we need to get to. So um, let's just jump in and and see what we've got in the mailbag this week. And if you didn't hear yours now, more than likely we'll get to you in the next episode. Exactly. We're getting so much mail that. We kind of have to be picky and choosy about which ones we we cover from now on. So here we go. So our first email came in from um, Kim Mahar, and he has a great suggestion for naming our collector's corner since we hadn't decided on how we want it. And uh, this kind of has relationship to the um, OCD <laughs> um, factor that we were dealing with. He he thinks that it should actually be named "Notes from the OCD." In other words, notes from the obsessive collector's desk <laughs> and i i think that is uh that's very cool he said you can use that you can use this slash selection or you can just file it away with a little baggie <laughs> which is great also as an aside he mentions he remembers from several episodes ago us talking about making our own button men and he's constructed a whole series of button men from lord oh, of the right. rings that's really cool that's really cool so we'll certainly take your uh, take into consideration your name for the uh collector's <laughs> corner i think that that's the front runner by far <laughs> Um, let's see. I had um, we have Todd in Aiken, South Carolina, who had kind of a bittersweet note about the Prince, which we just covered on episode twenty-six. Right. So uh, he writes, "This is just a, a note to tell you about the Prince. The designer is listed as Alexander Berg, but it's really Richard Berg, the prolific war game designer extraordinaire who created the game. Um, the Alexander credit is a tribute to Richard's son, who passed away um, fairly recently. Um, I, I believe he says he believes that he did two games with Alex." Alexander's name is a credit, The Prince, both with Phalanx, and the other one was Nero. Oh, so okay. I that's, that's really kind wow. of a nice you know, tribute to yeah, the son. Yeah, that's it's great. That's interesting, you know, sad, but interesting right, piece yeah, of news. Exactly. I, had, I really had no idea wow. about. 
Um, so back to you. Okay, so we got an email from Michael McLeod, um, who scares the hell out of me. <laughs> Michael has decided that he had so much time on his hand that he would calculate the amount of time that it would actually take us to play all the games off of our list. And he goes into quite some detail about how he um, actually arrived at this list. I won't go into as great as detail, but suffice it to say <laughs> that... <laughs> It is going to take us over two and a half years to play the games off of our list, and that's assuming that we don't buy any more games and add any more to the list. <laughs> I loved his little like methodology of, well, you know, I had to factor in that it was a new game, and I had to double it because you know it's the first time you're playing. Exactly. And, <laughs> and certainly if you play these, you can add two of the expansions in, so we'll cut the time off for this, but then we'll add in for this. Wow. <laughs> we may check with Michael and see if I can post that to the forum somewhere so people oh. can see the whole... Oh, like, I think he we... broke down every single game with like the, the right, actual yeah, Every like, single game on our list had a time <laughs> on it. Scary. Scary. Scary, but but thank you very much. <laughs> we had uh, David in Featherton, New Zealand, who had some kind of random musings about the show because he's been catching up on the past year's worth of episodes um, and then some, some just general comments. Uh, he uh, had a really good idea for Truckloads of Goober as a, a, a different way of approaching it. He says, Truckloads of Goober is a great part of the show, which he looks for. I look forward to. Uh, something that I thought might be fun is anti-Goober or reboog. <laughs> Goober spelled backwards, games that should have great goober, but don't, or that the goober adds nothing or takes away something from the game. Uh, some ex examples that come to mind for him were commanding colors with those crappy stickers right. or clippers, which we uh, oh. pan for the right. little sneeze counters. Rebug, uh, huh? <laughs> so we might have to have truckloads of rebug. Rebug. <laughs> um, in That's there. funny. Um, he also goes on to say that he thought the Gen Con episodes from last summer were really great and encourages us to do it every Every year for him he's always wanted to go to Gen Con but he's based in New Zealand and he thought that the episodes we did were kind of like the next best thing so this kind of leads into a couple convention announcements for us for this summer we're going to definitely be obviously at Gen Con since it's right here in our backyard but we're also going to be at Origins which is in Columbus Ohio in July um, we're going to be doing a discussion panel at Origins with some other podcasters. We don't have all the details with the panel, like when's and where's yet. We'll definitely get those to you as soon as we know. Um, but we do plan to do a meetup at Gen Con for sure. And if we get some interest, you know, hey, maybe Hopefully we can get some Origins, listeners exactly. uh, together and say hey to everybody at, at Origins as well. But the, just to let you know, those are on our convention calendar here coming up. So look for us at a, <laughs> a game convention near you very <laughs> exactly. soon. Look for the, the the two dorks in the spiel shirts. <laughs> um, have we uh, reached critical mass? Yes. Critical mass. I think we have. <laughs> well, happy anniversary. Happy, happy dice anniversary, yeah, Dave. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much. And happy anniversary to you also. <laughs> dice anniversary. Dice anniversary. <laughs> so that'll put a lid on on episode twenty-seven here of the spiel. I'm Stephen Conway, and I'm David Coulson. So remember. Whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win, you just, just have, have to play. play.
until I take over.